gotten a chance to meet you yet. My name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are so glad that you guys are here this morning with us. I just want to give a quick update regarding the giving that we did last week. And um, by the way, you can continue to give if you were forgot the game or you didn't bring it and you want to, you can give towards our vision 2022 towards the end of the year, through the end of the year. So let me give you that update. $300,000 came in and another $100,000 is committed. Yes. Awesome. And so I just want to thank you for your generosity, not just for that, but the generosity of the Halloween candy. I mean, I went down there and they were like, buckets of candy and to give out literally handfuls of candy to over 600 kids is absolutely incredible and that is a testament to your generosity because the church did not go out and buy that candy you brought that candy and so i personally want to thank you so thank you for that that is really incredible um so um when the titanic set sail in 1912 the Titanic was declared the unsinkable ship because it had new technology. You see, the, the men who built the Titanic decided they would compartmentalize the hull. In fact, it, it looked a lot like this. They would segment it off into 16 different sections. I don't know if you can see these red lines. They're a little faint, but they had these 16 different compartments. And the idea was that... It could hit an iceberg and take on a little bit of water here and take on a little bit of water here and a little bit of water here. And it could take up water up to four of these compartments and still not sink. And so that was declared the unsinkable ship. But on April 15th, 1912, at 2.20 a.m., 1,513 lives were lost. It hit an iceberg, and as you know, it did sink. And so they were totally flustered by this. They were confused. They had no idea how this happened. And on September 1st, 1985, we found the wreckage of the Titanic on the floor of the ocean. And we thought for sure four or five of these compartments had filled up with water, but that wasn't the case. They thought, many people had thought that that impact had maybe buckled or loosened some of these plates and, and the seams kind of ripped apart, and that's what contributed to it. They thought for sure they were going to find this wreckage, and there would be this long gash across the hull, but that's not what they found. You see, what they found is that when you begin to take on a little water here and a little water here, it affects the rest of the ship, and the same is true for you and I. That when we begin to compartmentalize our lives, we think, you know what, this area is, is segmented from the rest of my life. I, I can take on a little area, a little water in this area. I can take a, a little water here, a little water there, a little water here, and I'll be fine. My, my life will not sink. I will not fail. I will not collapse. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And so today, we are starting a series called A Tale of Three Kings. And the first king we're going to talk about today is a guy named King Saul. He was the very first king of Israel. In fact, he was chosen because he looked the part. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. I mean, he was the prom king. He was the leader of the people. They looked at him. They're like, that is our guy. 
And he started off as a really good guy, and over a while, his life collapsed. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So grab your Bibles and go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. There's a lot of good examples in the Bible to follow, but there's a lot of things that we can learn from men like Saul who didn't always do everything right. This is a man who took on a little bit of water. Finally, his life collapsed. His ship sank. And so we're going to look at three steps to his failure. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have it on the screen behind me. Find it in your Bible app or follow along on the screen. Here's what it says. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the, all, the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. So God sends Samuel to Saul, and he says, okay, Saul, here's the message. Listen up. Listen to the voice of God. And in that moment, King Saul should have really leaned in and said, okay, what do you have for me? He says, I, I need you to listen to God's voice. I need you to obey what he's about to tell you. And then he gives them this mission. And you heard the mission. I mean, you might have heard that and go, is that really in the Bible? Did he really say destroy everybody? And here's, here's a little bit of the background. You see, when Israel was wandering around the wilderness, the Amalekites came up for no reason at all, and they attacked Israel from behind. And God, in Exodus chapter 17, told Moses, I am going to blot out every single memory of the Amalekites. I'm going to punish them. They are going to find judgment from me. The Amalekites were wicked. They were evil. They killed children and infants. This was a, an abomination of people. And so God said, I'm going to judge them. And then he comes to Saul and he says, Saul, I have a mission for you. I want you to carry out this mission. You're going to carry out this judgment. And so for 300 years, God has been merciful and kind and patient with the Amalekites. And finally, he comes to Saul and says, here's the mission. What does Saul do? I mean, he is the king of Israel. And God gives him this clear mission, destroy all of them. Look at what happens. Verse 4. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havial to shore near the eastern border of Egypt. 
he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So Saul puts together an army and notice what he does and what he doesn't do. Look at verse 8 again. He took Agag, the king, alive. Now, remember what he was supposed to do. Remember the mission that God had given him. This is God carrying out judgment and punishment on the Amalekites. And Saul says, okay, we'll take care of everything, but the king, you know what? We're going we're gonna to put him in chains and handcuffs, and we're going to march him around, and he's going to be our prize. Like, we're going to show everybody, look at what we did. And then look at what happens in verse 9. Saul and the army, what did they do? They spared the best sheep and cattle and the fat calves and lambs and everything that was good. But they were unwilling to destroy everything that was despised and weak. And so they began to pick and choose what they were going to do. They're going to pick and choose how they're going to obey God. Isn't that like us sometimes? We, we see things in God's word and, and we're like, well, that sounds really good. But I don't know if I can do that. I mean, wait a minute. You want me to get up in front of people and tell everybody how I put my faith in Jesus and publicly profess that I'm a follower of Jesus and then let you put me underwater? Well, I'm not sure about that, Tim. Are you going to bring me back up? Wait, wait, wait. You want me to go into all the world and share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus? I don't, I don't know if that's my gift, Tim. I'm not an evangelist. I didn't go to Bible college. I don't really know if I can do that. Wait, you want me to live with sexual purity in my life? I don't know, but I don't know if I can do all of that. And we begin to pick and choose what we're going to do and how we're going to obey, and we begin to partially obey God. And I see this, not with my kids, but sometimes, you, you have kids that might do this, but one of them hits the other sibling, right? And you say, you need to go tell your brother, you need to go tell your sister what? I'm sorry, or maybe I was wrong. And what do they do? They go up to their brother or sister, they, they grit their teeth as hard as they can, and they say, I'm sorry. And what they really mean is, I'm forced against my will to say these words, I'm sorry. Now, they did it. They said the right words, but they did it with the wrong attitude, and it's partial obedience. Or, or how about, um, again, this does never happen to my family, but it, it's bedtime, right? And so you tell the kids it's time to go to bed, it's time to go up the stairs, and they, all, they already know this, right? They know every night it's approximately the same time. It's time to go to bed, and, and how fast do they move? As slow as possible, right? Now, you know they can move faster because when it's time to go out the door to do something fun, 
or it's time to eat candy, they are grease lightning to that table to get their bags and buckets of candy. And they have delayed obedience. But partial obedience, delayed obedience is disobedience. That God said, I want you to destroy everything. And they say, well, well, look at these animals. Look at these. These are the best. I mean, these are the fattest lambs and the fattest cows and the fattest calves we've ever seen. These are good. And so the first way we begin to take on a little bit of water is with partial obedience. That you and I, we, we pick and choose what we're going to believe. We pick and choose how we're going to obey God and we make decisions. And Saul here is beginning to take on just a little bit of water. I can do part of this mission. I can do what I want. And so Saul was willing to obey God until that conflicted with his own desires. As long as God was telling him to do things that lined up with what he wanted to do, Saul was good to go. But as soon as God began to tell him to do stuff that he wasn't really good with or he didn't really want to do that, he chose partial obedience. Once they became different to his desires, he was disobedient. He wasn't willing to obey. Well, let's look at the results of this. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument for his own honor, and he has turned and gone down to Gilgal. So there he is. He is he's upset because, man, I had a, I had a, a place in making Saul king. And God actually says, I regret. I regret this. Now, what does that mean, that, that God regretted that? Does it mean that God says, you know what, I wish I could take that back. I wish I could undo that. I wish I had never done that at all. I don't think God regrets any decisions. In fact, I know he doesn't regret any decisions he's made. But what it's saying is God's purposes for Saul have changed. I can no longer use Saul as my king over Israel. His purposes have run out. And so God is saying, I'm beginning to change courses here. Saul, who was my king, will no longer be the king of Israel. I'm going to shift gears here. Look at verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now hold on here. Samuel runs into Saul, and Saul says, Hey, I've done everything right. Wait a minute, really? Look at verse 14. But Samuel said, okay, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? So like mid-sentence, they're beginning to hear what's going on. Hey, I've done everything. And, it, <clears throat> and in the background, you're, bah, 
You're like, wait, what was that noise, buddy? What's going on here? You carried out everything, and, and we can hear the cattle and the goats and the lambs and everything clear off in the field? I don't think so. And so, verse 15, Saul answered, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. And so Saul thinks, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it off, right? The soldiers did this. They're the ones that, that brought back the, the sheep. And by the way, they brought back the best ones. Isn't that good news? And look, they want to sacrifice them to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Like, like I did a really good job, didn't I? And God's like, no, I, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your obedience. I don't want your, your good works. I don't want you to mark off all the boxes. I don't want this, this celebration. I don't want this ceremony. I want your obedience. So how, would we, how are we doing with that? Are we taking on water in that area? And, and I don't think Saul was, was nervous I don't even think he had a, a clear conscience at this at all. He, he would have said, hey, I did this or we did this. But he is totally blaming everybody else. But Saul, aren't you the king? Like, aren't you in charge? Like, if you say, go here, do this, these are your soldiers? And so he begins to take on water with that partial obedience. But notice the second way he takes on water. He begins to blame shift. He's not taking personal responsibility. And we do this all the time, right? You made me angry. My kids are pushing my buttons. I wouldn't have responded that way, but, my, but you don't know my boss. My boss is a jerk. Not my boss. But we begin to say things like, well, I wouldn't be so worried if the economy wasn't this way or the world was, wasn't this way or, or my finances weren't this way. And we begin to look at other people and other situations and we begin to say, well, it's their fault. This is going on. This is happening. And if this wasn't true, then I wouldn't be like this. And we don't want to take full responsibility. And we need to begin to see our sin as the biggest sin in the room. That when we begin to blame shift, we begin to, to make excuses for our sins, we begin to make excuses for our actions, we're taking on a little more water here, a little more water there, a little more water, and that affects the rest of our lives. Saul's life is on the brink of collapse because he's partially obeying, he's not taking responsibility, but look at what else happens. Verse 16. <laughs> Samuel's like, enough. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Uh-oh is right. <laughs> Saul's like, all right, tell me. Let's hear it. Verse 17, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. 
verse 18, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. Really? Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Look at verse 17 again. Samuel says, you were once small in your own eyes. You were tiny in your own eyes, and then God radically changed your identity. He made you from a man and brought you and made you the king over all of Israel. Saul, you are not that person anymore. You're the king. You've been anointed by God. You've been called by God to lead and provide leadership. And you're afraid. You're afraid of what everybody else thinks of you. You look at yourself and you are small and they are big and you have this fear of people. You're crippled by their opinions because they want you to do this and they want you to do that. And he begins to take on a little more water, a little more water because, yeah, maybe it was the soldier's idea to take those cattle. Maybe it was even the soldier's idea to take King Agag. But Saul, you gave in to their opinions. Their opinions mattered more than God's. And why did you rush upon their plunder? Why did you take all of their stuff? Saul, you weren't supposed to take anything. Don't take their money. Don't take their belongings. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Just follow God's word. Partial obedience, not taking responsibility but look what else. Verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? I mean, it's kind of a dumb question. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than fat of rams. Samuel is saying, It is so much better to obey God than to bring these sacrifices. It's so much better to obey God than to do these ceremonies and to mark off the right boxes because God is after your heart. And then listen to this, verse 23. He says, let me explain, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as God wants our obedience, not our offerings, not our sacrifices. He wants our obedience. And he says, Saul, your disobedience is like wicked idolatry. Taking on a little water here, a little water there, partially obeying here, blame shifting there. But then look at verse 24. He says, then Saul said to Samuel, I I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions, and I was 
afraid of the men. I, I was afraid. Look, I violated, I, I passed over. That's the word. I passed over. Hey, I just, I just overlooked it. Oh, that, that doesn't really sound like you're taking any responsibility yet. I just kind of passed over the Lord's commands. And honestly, I was, I was scared of what they thought of me. I was afraid. He had a, a fear of man. But look at verse 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And then he goes on, verse 26. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Verse 24 again. I violated it. I was afraid of people. I mean, Saul, the king of Israel, great potential, could have been an incredible leader, could have done amazing things for God. And he said, you know what? I have this fear of man. I'm terrified of what other people think about me. Here's what the fear of man looks like. It's, it's me wanting somebody else. Will you accept me? I view them, I view their opinion bigger than God's opinion. The fear of man shows up when I crave things like love, acceptance, approval, respect, significance. Have you been there? Maybe you show up at work or you go over to a friend's house and, and you're really excited because you want to share this story that happened to you or you want to you share a joke that you thought was funny. You heard it, it was told really well and they laughed. Or, or maybe you just got your hair done. Not me, but you did. Or maybe you got like new clothes and you're hoping to get a reaction on Monday. You hope they laugh at your joke. They, you hope that they, they lean in, they like your story. And after you're done, they didn't notice your new haircut. They, they kind of gave you a courtesy laugh. <laughs> they didn't really care for your story. And you walk away and you feel discouraged. You feel defeated. You feel like, oh, man, they don't even like me. They didn't even notice. They don't even care. They don't love me. They're, they're probably really not even my friends. They're... And you fear being rejected. That is the fear of man. When we live our lives for the opinions of others, when we find our value in what other people think about us, that's the fear of man. When I think that I am significant, when I think I'm valuable, when I think that I am amazing because everybody else keeps telling me so, that's the fear of man. When work doesn't go the way that I thought, the boss doesn't give me that praise, that that, that a boy, the project doesn't produce what we hoped it would, and I look at that as a failure, and I look at that as an evaluation of how valuable I am, that's the fear of man. Here's what Proverbs 29, 25 says. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If you want to overcome the fear of man, you've got to begin to trust God more. You have to have a bigger picture of who God is. Because that fear of man always promises one thing and delivers something completely different. 
The author of Proverbs says it is a trap. You walk into every single day. And so let's keep going. Verse 27. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being, that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I've sinned, but, but please honor me before the elders. Like, please don't embarrass me in front of everybody else. Honor me before my elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I can worship the Lord your God. Verse 31. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Saul is so concerned about what other people think. He says, please don't embarrass me in front of my elders. I just want to salvage what I have. I want my reputation, my reputation, what other people think is so important to me. So he takes on a little water with partial obedience. He takes on a little more water by not taking full responsibility. And then he takes on water by fearing people more than God. When we fear people more than God, we see people as big and God as really, really small, we've begun to take on water that will eventually lead to failure or collapse. This is what we see in Saul's life. And so we have this, this fear of people. And so go ahead and jump to the last slide. What do we do? Fast forward a couple more. Back one. Got it. What do we do? How do we move forward with this? First of all, we need to evaluate our lives. and We need to look at where am I not obeying God fully? What's your next step? Have you gone public with your faith? If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized as a believer, maybe that's your next step. If you're here as a follower of Christ and you're not regularly praying for lost people, inviting them into conversations or inviting them to church or investing in them as people, maybe that's your next step. Maybe you need to sign up and take our discovery class. Or maybe you're not taking full responsibility you like to hide and cover and conceal your sin and just pretend like you've got it all together or, or blame shift it. It's them, it's this, it's my parents, it's my upbringing, it's my boss, it's my spouse, it's my kids. Maybe it's actually me. Maybe they kind of bump the boat a little bit, but what spills out comes out of my own heart. Maybe I need to grow in my fear of the Lord. Maybe I need to grow and trust him even more. The most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of God. That we have to see God bigger than we already see him. God must be bigger to you and I than people are. So that's my challenge to you. That one of these things, if it's resonating with you, that's what you need to go and do 
this week. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have this example of Saul that we can learn from, but we also recognize that you want us to be all in. And I just pray that you would help us to put off partial obedience, you would help us to take full responsibility, and you would give us a greater, a grander picture of who you are, that we would fully obey and live our lives for you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to move into communion, and so I hope you got one of these cups, and I recognize that these cups can be a little tricky. Maybe you have big thumbs and a little cup, and I'll just give you a quick tutorial. I hear some of you already opening it, but, but there is a plastic film. You can just kind of grab that and just kind of pull that back just a tiny bit. And then maybe this edge right here, this lip gives you a little trouble getting that juice. Nobody likes spilling grape juice on themselves. So you can just fold that down and break that tab. And then once you break that tab, it will give you a little bit of a head start to peel that back. So I just want you to find that. Start working on that. If you're struggling with that, don't throw it at anybody. But communion is for the believer. If you're here this morning and you're not sure you're a Christian, you're not sure you've ever placed your faith in, in Jesus, you've never asked him to be your savior, I would say just sit back, watch, listen, reflect. But this is not for you. This is really for the people who have put their faith in Christ. That Jesus, when, when you put your faith in Jesus, he radically transforms your identity. It's like a, a $20 bill. A $20 bill is not worth $20 because it's $20 of paper and ink. It's worth $20 because the designer, the creator, gave that value to that bill. And when you put your faith in Christ, he gave you a value. And your value is what he was willing to pay for you. God was willing to pay for you, Jesus. He was willing to give his one and only perfect son who was the one who always obeyed and never sinned, and that's your value. And so when we, when we take communion, we're remembering that. We're reflecting back that God has radically transformed my identity. That's my value. It's not in what people think of me. It's not in their opinions of me. It's in my identity in Christ. And so this meal reminds us of that, that you've been redeemed. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew 26. He says, this, this bread-like substance, it won't save you. It is a symbol of the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross for your sins. This has no redeeming value, but this is what Jesus says in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, take it, eat this, this is my body.
And then he took the cup, which also does not provide any saving value, but it symbolizes the blood of Christ that was shed for your sins and my sins that offered forgiveness to make us white as snow. Again, transforming our identity and we take communion, remembering what Jesus did on the cross. And this is what it says in verse 27. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it from, drink from it, all that you do. This is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God in heaven, we are amazed that we get to walk into your presence, into your throne room and talk to you. God, we're thankful that we can take communion and remember and reflect all that you have done for us, that you have radically changed and transformed our identity. Thank you that Jesus died on a cross, purchased us, redeemed us out of the darkness, and made forgiveness possible. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that we have that with you. Help us to walk in the light and be that salt and light in our community. In Christ's name we pray. Would you stand as we close and sing?